Hello and welcome to Macrobytes, the economic and politics podcast series from Aberdeen. My name is Luke Bartholomew and today we will be talking about China and in particular the shifting regulatory sounds around the real estate, technology and education sectors where, as I say, sweeping changes in these areas stunned investors through 2021 and saw significant uh, market hits, market capitalization of various big firms reduced by something like $1 trillion. And the sweepingness of these change combined with increased rhetoric from senior Communist Party officials around common prosperity has divided commentators, investors, analysts as they try to work out the motivations and exactly what's going on. I have some people arguing that this is all about domestic and global politics, the Communist Party trying to shore up its domestic power base and to buttress against potential global threats, whilst others see these as justifiable interventions um, to tackle uh, market competition issues, systemic risk issues, uh, and perhaps to deal with various inequality concerns as well. So to help us navigate through these various arguments, I'm delighted to say I am joined today by Paul Lukaszewski, who's our head of corporate debt Asia Pacific, and Bob Gilhui, who's a senior emerging market economist and is just completing an extensive research project around Chinese regulatory policy. So I can think of no better guess to help us with these issues. So I think we'll start with the real estate sector, which, given the importance of real estate in the Chinese economy and driving growth, and also the nexus of links between uh, banks, developers, local governments, creating potential pillars of vulnerability, which if toppled, could engender of cascading defaults and systemic risks. This has been uh, always an important sector for global investors, but especially so in the last few months as the trials of Evergrande has been sort of top of headlines. Evergrande, this is uh, China's highly indebted real estate developer. So Paul, maybe starting with you, I mean, markets still seem to be pricing in a pretty high degree of systemic risk uh, around real estate developers and these issues in general. So perhaps you can start us off by just seeing, telling us how you see these issues and sort of how the market's been weighing them up. Thanks very much, Luke. Thank you for, for having me with you today. Um, I, I think before we get into, into the specifics, it is important to have a little bit of context about what is, what is happening in, in China and in, this, um, in, in the pro- uh, property sector specifically. You, know, you, you mentioned the, the common prosperity uh, rhetoric. Uh, if, if we take a look at the property sector itself, the, the kind of the phrase that has been coming from regulators now for several years is that housing is for living. Um, which very much aligns with that common prosperity theme. Um, if, if you ask where we stand on the issue, we think it's, it's, it's much more sort of the latter of, of the two alternatives you presented, that this, this is a pivot by, by China um, to a strategic pivot in terms of the shape and direction of, of the domestic economy to, uh, to support stronger long-term growth. Um, and, and that is obviously coming at the expense of, of some near-term volatility. Um, but it is very much about you know, preserving opportunity and equality, especially for China's middle class. It's about ta- um, you know, tackling income inequality, um, unfair competition practices, and, and, and issues of that sort. 
and, and with the property sector, um, you know, so obviously one, it, it is meant to tramp down speculation. It's, it's meant to tramp down, again, runaway property prices um, to, again, preserve that sort of that, that opportunity for, for China's middle class. Uh, but importantly, it is also one of, of trying to contain the, the risks to the domestic economy because the property sector is so important to it. Um, but as you mentioned in, in your question, right, there's still quite a lot of risk that is being reflected in, in markets at the moment. You know, China, China single B spreads in, in the dollar market you know, are, are sort of a 3,500 basis point kind of level, which, which implies a 50% default rate. Now that's on top of you know all of the most troubled developers that have long since been downgraded to to triple C territory, and really where we are now is is you know for the for Asia's entire offshore credit market the the implication is that we'll have a default rate probably between ten and twenty percent, which will be historic. Um, you know we've never seen levels like that in in, in the history of this market before. And the, now the reason for that is is you know it, it is a developing market and the property sector is is quite um, quite important to to it, especially in the high yield market where where obviously this default rate applies to. Um, China property developers account for about forty percent of of the market. So given the stress in in that sector in particular, um, that is why we see such exaggerated impacts on the market as a whole. Without rambling on for too long, um, you know the systemic risk really is is one of of uh, you know the complexity of the issue. We've 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 had you know central policy sort of steer towards tightening and, and promoting de-risking of developers, um, and and we've seen you know rising investor risk aversion translate into significant drops in bond prices as as investors are losing confidence that that builders will be able to refinance their debt. Now, what's really exacerbated the issue in the last couple of months has been that uh, zealous local regulators and bankers are, are reacting to the stresses they see by, by further constraining each developer's liquidity. Um, you know, they're basically locking um, cash in project accounts and not allowing developers to access that. And, and so where, where the central government policy is, is, I think, increasingly pivoting towards, you know, towards promoting stability and, and perhaps recognizing that, that it may have gone a bit too far. Unfortunately, the coordination down to the local level hasn't quite, you know, reconciled the liquidity problem and in some respects is, is actually fueling even greater stress at the moment. I take the point there about the tackling of systemic is issues and perhaps central policymakers are starting to favour a bit more stability at the moment. But have we been perhaps surprised by the, maybe the sense that policymakers are underestimating the squeeze that they've put on the real estate sector or perhaps the slowness in response from policymakers? Yeah, yes. In a word, yes, I think we are surprised. We're, we're surprised the crisis has been allowed to, to reach um, the level it, it's reached. Um, to, to kind of highlight a few, a few statistics, you know, the, the property sector is, is estimated to contribute between 20 to 30 percent of, of China's GDP. Um, importantly, it also represents about um, 70% of, of household wealth. Uh, it's, it's the number one store of value for, you know, for, for Chinese citizens. And, um, and lastly, it's also a key revenue source for local governments, again, re representing usually about 30% of, of revenues for local governments, um, you know, local, local governments via land sales, which go to developers. So those developers need to be healthy and, and able and willing to buy more land. Um, so with, with all of these pressure points and stress points, um, you know, it, it has been surprising to us that, that the crisis was allowed to reach the levels it has. And, and certainly it seemed like 
you know, regulators were a bit passive and, and not quite recognizing the, the severity um, of the problem that had been triggered. A statistic we came up with back in September um, was that 25% of, of the sector by, by, by property sales transactions, so of, of the entire domestic property market in China, had a, was, was accounted for by builders who had at least $1 bond with a yield of 20% or more. Now that's, you know, again, that's a statistic that basically tells you the market's saying that, that those builders cannot refinance their debts. And, and so that's, you know, a quarter of the industry and things have only really gotten worse um, with the liquidity squeeze that's materialized since then. So um, if we think about ramifications and, you know, as, as Donald Rumsfeld once talked about the, you know, the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns, I think if, if we trigger, you know, the consumer confidence hit and the potential repercussions you could have across the economy if, if, you, if you saw that much um, destruction, whether it was loss of employment, you know, falling housing prices, um, and, and just general rattling of consumer confidence, you know, certainly that's, I think, a pretty large unknown unknown. Um, and, and hence, you know, we do find ourselves surprised that, that, you know, for a government that values stability, that, that things have reached the, the position they're in. But importantly, we, we do believe that, that the tide is clearly turning and, and, and that regulators have woken up to the issue. Well, let's leave property there for now and move into the technology sector, because I guess, as you say, what's interesting about real estate are uh, these clear financial stability risks that might make sense to tackle. In the technology sector, there's sort of potentially more uh, issues uh, at stake around competition policy, national security, geopolitics, and indeed regulators and governments across the world are trying to figure out how they want to regulate and deal with the tech sector. So, Bob, bringing you in here, I wonder, have we seen a new approach from China recently, a more prioritization around dealing with things quickly? Yeah, I think potentially, yes. We are kind of seeing this kind of speed take, uh, take precedence. Um, and while China is probably kind of at the more extreme end of this, uh, I would say it's maybe not just a, a kind of China story when we, when we look at regulations around the world. There, there does seem to be a kind of growing recognition internationally the intervention in technology firms needs to be a bit more responsive and forward-looking uh competition authorities around the world seem to be kind of struggling if you will to apply conventional regulatory frameworks to technology firms um for example you know antitrust traditionally is focused on uncompetitive price setting is require regulators to define the impact of markets but the, the rise of zero cost products the powerful network effects that can lead to this sort of winner takes most landscape dominated by a few large tech firms. And, and these are large tech firm dominating landscape, but still exerting down pressure on goods prices. This really means that kind of pricing alone is often a kind of insufficient criteria which to judge uh, competition and antitrust. So this does seem to be, I think, shifting regulators, not just in China, towards a kind of ex-ante assessment, thinking about how competition might be affected rather than waiting for clear evidence. So in that sense, you know, China steps are probably a bit more aggressive, but they're not necessarily kind of at odds with these embryonic global trends. And indeed, the EU's competition chief, uh, Margaret Vestager, recently said, you know, it's, it's better to get 80% now than 100% uh, never. Uh, and you, you might think as well that there's potentially advantages of moving fast in an emerging market context uh, versus a kind of DM context. So emerging markets might be starting Kind of further from best practice uh, so potentially it's more effective to kind of get the regulatory perimeter kind of back up 
to kind of where it where it should be when your economy's undergoing a lot of structural change uh, and more just kind of uh, growing fast. I mean, it's, of course, it's not that's not to say that moving fast is is not without quite a lot of risks. Uh, moving fast is likely to keep investors fairly on edge. Policy uncertainty can definitely be amplified, particularly if there's concerns about property rights. Regulations not operating necessarily in a solid legal framework, and if there's kind of free, uh, few recourse opportunities as well. So this kind of opaque decision making process can make everything kind of seem like there's much more unpredictable shifts in the in the regulations uh, going going on. So we've talked there about the the competition policy aspect of this and and the reasons why one might want to move quickly on the basis of, of, of competition-based reasons. But I'm wondering sort of what other factors might also be at play in terms of motivating the intervention in the technology sector? I mean, how much is politics both domestically and internationally playing a role in this, do you think? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's definitely a few a few kind of interrelated factors there. I mean, first of all, I'd probably break it into two. So I'd, I'd say, you know, like property, financial stability has definitely been the motivation for some of the interventions within technology. Uh, fintech regulation was initially very light touch in the, in the early days. You know, the, the state council saw advantages in, in kind of increasing financial inclusion, uh, helping kind of motivate uh, and spur change within other financial firms. But this kind of un, unfettered fintech innovation, I think, is beginning to look quite a lot more like regulatory arbitrage. And that sat quite uneasy, uneasily with the kind of ongoing de-risking campaign, which began in 2017 with this kind of crackdown uh, on on shadow banking, uh, and then yeah, I mean, turning to to politics, um, I think you know, one can't fully discount the kind of domestic political motivations. Uh, large technology firms were clearly a key component in keeping China, in fact, most countries around the world running through the COVID nineteen shock. Uh, the government did find it needed these firm systems uh, to track and trace as part of its zero COVID strategy. So this kind of rise, if you will, in economic and political power potentially, you know, could have raised eyebrows in, in Beijing. Uh, obviously, we had the torpedoing of the Ant financial IPO. That certainly made it seem, I think, initially, like power politics was part of the story. But as we kind of progressed through the year, I think this clearly broadened out beyond Ant. Uh, CBIRC noted there's, you know, problems with arbitrage were not just an Ant financial issue. Uh, the state uh, uh, administration for markets and regulation reportedly summoned about 30 internet firms admonishing them for a kind of range of business practices uh, too. Um, but I, I think this is kind of broadly consistent with the notion that the, the authorities were motivated by kind of domestic factors, uh, competition uh, as well. Uh, I, would, I would throw domestic, kind of, sorry, I would throw geopolitics into the mix here. So while I, I put more emphasis on the kind of competition angles, uh, dealing with FS risks around fintech, uh, I think it is important to acknowledge that geopolitics has been an influence on some of the interventions within technology. So, so China's new data security law is a good example. So this law governs how data is stored and transferred. In this regard, it's quite similar to the EU's GDPR, but it also introduces security-related classifications of important data and national core data. So these, these are effectively tough conditions on the ability of firms to transfer data abroad, Firms that are deemed to are called critical information infrastructure operators, which includes communications, IT, finance, and energy, uh, required to store data in China and must go undergo eventually like a security assessment 
by the Cyberspace Administration of China for, for data transfers out. And this kind of seems much more like a essentially just a drag on firms rather than kind of being motivated by uh, market failure per se. So much more about the kind of geopolitics, national security there. Brilliant. And so moving on to our final sector of education, where the intervention there seems to be less about um, market failure and potentially more in line with the common prosperity rhetoric around what at least you can make an argument around tackling inequalities. Certainly the effective shutting down of the private education system, I think, came as quite a shock to a lot of investors. So, Bob, why don't you, you start by just sort of reminding us what's happened in that sector and why? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, thanks. Um, I mean, the what, the what is, I guess, kind of relatively straightforward. So we, we'd had some, I guess, if you will, murmurs of disconsent. Uh, discontent from the authorities about the private education sector. Ministry of Education had criticised the kind of flood of money into the sector and the pressure that it was seemingly putting on parents to sign up their kids for tutoring service. But the, the effective shutdown, you know, a $70 billion sort of industry was much more than expected. So new academic tutoring firms will no longer be approved. Uh, existing companies are being forced to convert into non-profit entities uh, and tutoring firms can't raise any money uh, on the stock market or indeed accept any foreign investment. So, you know, the more extreme commentators out there are really kind of questioning there's some sort of beginning of the end of, of Chinese capitalism. Um, I think maybe the, the more interesting, you know, no, we wouldn't agree with that, but the more interesting, I think, is kind of the, the why, and that, that's probably a bit more complicated too. So it, it seems to us that Communist Party concern about the pressures which households face from the likes of high housing costs, long work hours, and then juggling childcare seem to be kind of intersecting with this growing disquiet or concern about declining fertility rates and the rapid ageing of the population. So China's births fell very notably uh, in 2020 when we had the latest census, uh, very much likely that that year was due to the COVID crisis. But births also fell quite notably in the previous three years. And if we use the UN's population projections, the economic implications of kind of following or following into uh, a low fertility path are huge. So by the end of the century, working age population uh, in China, if we follow this low fertility path, could be around about 250 million lower than if fertility uh, holds up. Uh, and then, you know, as you said, it's probably better to think about this kind of through the common prosperity lens, uh, an attempt to kind of resolve a social failure with the, I guess, the externality in this case being kind of falling population and falling economic might that it might uh, imply. Uh, indeed, I think kind of viewed in this way, this kind of heavy handed approach could potentially be kind of thought of as needed to, to break the socially suboptimal equilibrium. So the, the knowledge that other parents are motivated to pay for tutoring, to give their children an edge, leads everyone to demand it. So we kind of end up the educational equivalents of sort of game theories, uh, prisoner, uh, prisoner's dilemma. Well, so on that note, I mean, do you think this policy does tackle the, the root cause of, of the problem? And, and to use that game theory language, is this a stable equilibrium, do we think? Um, probably not. I mean, the, the you know, Chinese Communist Party certainly prizes stability. And, and maybe this is just kind of some, some first steps in trying to get at the root cause of the problems. But I think I think our analysis today suggests no. So private tutoring, which reportedly costs around about 10 times as much, could take the place of provision by firms, so that could potentially exacerbate inequality of opportunity. Competitive pressures to excel academia, I think risks maybe putting more burden on parents as a potentially less efficient source of teaching. I think most parents who've had to endure, endure homeschooling 
through uh, COVID lockdowns would likely agree with that. Uh, and then kind of more seriously, you know, one could also argue that we could it could perpetuate, I guess, a kind of inequality of educational opportunity across the generations. Uh, you know, put simply, those who've got well-educated parents might therefore kind of have better chances uh, to get into university. So, you know, overall, I'd be a bit more confident this, this, that this was going to be durable if it was coinciding with more fundamental change uh, within education. So there's not yet really any signs of changes to the tough university entrance exams. Uh, and then I guess international examples as well uh, of trying to deal with the symptoms rather than the root cause are not particularly encouraging either. So Korea's attempts to ban tutoring uh, in the early 1980s to also build an attempt to ease pressure on students in its kind of similarly competitive educational environment. However, uh, quote, uh, underground tutoring eventually led the government to kind of roll back uh, on, its, on, its, on its restrictions. Uh, and here I always kind of imagine this underground tutoring club as somewhat like Fight Club, but you know, more chalk and more chalk and algebra and less less punching. Well, that's probably uh, an excellent note to uh, to end our topic on education. Then, um, so perhaps just to wrap us up, uh, uh, Paul. I mean, I said at the start that these regulatory changes have sort of been quite a significant shock to markets over this year, wiped off. A lot of value. I mean, how are we seeing things going forward from here? I mean, is there a possibility of, of positive regulatory surprises? Yeah, no, I, th- I um, thanks, Luke. Uh, I, as I alluded to in my earlier remarks, I, I, I think that's we are on that path to, to, to stabilization now, um, at least specifically with the, with the property sector, which is the sector that's sort of most dislocated in the eyes of markets at the moment. Um, you know, if, if we look back over the last year, the, the tightening cycle has, has largely been in place for a few years, um, you know, sort of, if, especially if we set aside temporary loosening that came in response to the original COVID shock in 2020. But otherwise, the, the direction of travel has very much been on tightening, um, you know, most clearly seen in, in the three red lines policy, um, a bit less under appreciated by many, but there's also a, a similar two red lines policy for banks with respect to their lending to developers. Um, you know, so that's that's been sort of the tightening stance. But what we've seen in, in recent months um, is a very clear transition towards towards seeking to to I think de-risk what, what's happening in markets at the moment. You know, from a central government level, we've we've seen clear up, uptick in, in terms of engagement with with various stakeholders, whether it's 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 um, you know local regulators, whether it's um, ratings agencies, market participants, or developers themselves. But we're we're seeing a lot more engagement from you know from authority figures on that front. Um, you know, we're seeing the PBOC, for example, target specifically improving uh, mortgage financing, as well as, as as pushing banks to to restore lending to to the sector. Um, we've had reports of, of the three red lines calculations to specifically be amended to exclude M&A lending. That's important because it could provide a, a potential pathway for for asset sales and, and encourage a degree of consolidation um, driven by by the larger, more stable names. Uh, and then lastly, and probably most importantly, um, you know, what we have is right now is, is, is sort of a negative feedback loop. And that negative feedback loop is, is concerned about builders' ability and willingness to repay their debts as they come due. And we've seen regulators try to adopt the, the playbook they, they employed back in 2018, where we had a similar crisis of a smaller scale in that they're targeting reopening financing channels for developers onshore. Um, we've seen reports in particular, the, the promotion of, of allowing higher quality builders to access the interbank bond market onshore. And most recently, we've also seen a notable push and uptake in terms of, of ABS financing for developers as well. 
So, you know, those are two key channels and, and, and really for, for, for the sector to normalize, it's important for, for market participants to see a way out of it, to see that builders can, you know, manage their debts as they come due while they maintain themselves on a path to, to deleveraging and de-risking. But the second part of, of the equation is also the self-help side, you know, where, where corporates aren't standing idly by either. Um, and just to give examples, but you know, we've seen equity raises, we've seen asset sales, we've seen sort of creative financing transactions, um, and we've seen you know corporate actions or, or let's call it creative liability management, where where builders you know are recognizing that perhaps their current creditors are their best source of, of financing for the time being, and so looking to find creative ways to you know to extend their maturity profiles to avoid you know defaulting in, in the near term. Um, so all of these things, you know, have, have kind of clearly brought us in from the wides, um, you know, from kind of the wides we saw about a month ago. But but that's as I mentioned, you know, we're still in a market that's pricing and just an, a historic level of defaults. Um, so there's clearly, you know, uh, we're, we're still in a very fragile state. And, and uh, I think the momentum needs to be maintained because otherwise we are facing, you know, more default events in, in the near term. And and potentially more, you know, more volatility if, if if regulators don't continue to to find ways to cushion the downside here. Super. So I think that is all we have time for this week. So thank you so much to Paul and Bob for joining us and providing their excellent insights. As I said, we will be releasing an extensive research series on this topic. So please do look out for that, and please do like subscribe and comment on the podcast in your preferred podcast provider and all that remains for me to say then is thanks very much for listening and speak to you again soon thank you very much this podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets it is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The companies discussed in this podcast have been selected for illustrative purposes only or to demonstrate our investment management style and not as an investment recommendation or indication of their future performance. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections or estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.